Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we study the words of the Buddha using this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. We use volume one for this group learning program. It's a seven-month program where each Sunday I'm covering a chapter that's in the book, and on Wednesdays we're doing group meditation or chanting together. So I'd like to welcome all of you to this class. We only have this class and two more that are part of this group learning program, and then we're actually going to be finishing the group learning program at the end of this month. And then we're going to have eight classes that are specialized classes for November and December, and then we'll restart the whole group learning program in January. So if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you've just joined us in the last week or two, I'd like to welcome you and anybody who's been joining us regularly, because today we're in chapter 23, which is nearly the end of the book. And this chapter is titled Symbolism of the Teachings, Reminders Through Imagery. And here, this is where you're going to learn about some of the symbols that are used in order to communicate the teachings of the Buddha. Because during his lifetime, he taught everything orally. Nothing was written down until after his death. So the people during his lifetime, they didn't read and write, not because they were illiterate in terms of being ignorant of how to do that. It's just that the language that they were speaking in didn't actually have a character set and the ability to write things down during his lifetime. So everything was taught orally and he used chanting twice a week where people would recite his teachings word for word for word. So when he would speak and deliver teachings, his students would remember those teachings word for word and then they would recite them every two weeks as a way to really deeply soak them into the mind and understand what it is that he actually taught. But then he used symbols like the ones we're going to be using and talking about today in order to remind people of the teachings that he had shared. So if you were in a discourse with the Buddha and he had taught something like the Eightfold Path, for example, then whenever you saw this certain symbol, then you would remember what the Eightfold Path is and it would bring those teachings into the mind or the cycle of rebirth or certain aspects of enlightenment and things like this. So these images and these symbols are still used throughout Buddhist culture, throughout Buddhist art, throughout architecture and Buddhist temples. And if you know the teachings, which someone who's gone through this program up to this point would have some foundation in the teachings. And if you know the connection between these teachings and the symbols, you can look at Buddhist art or you can go into Buddhist temples and you can view the artwork and the architecture and see the connection between what's being represented in the temples and the artwork connected to the teachings of the Buddha. And this makes it really interesting and really fun to go into 
Buddhist temples because it's like the walls come alive. It's like a living library that you can walk through the temple and you can see the different artwork and the different architecture in the temple and you can connect the teachings of the Buddha to what people built 500 years ago or 700 years ago or a thousand years ago because these teachings are the same teachings that have existed from the lifetime of the Buddha. The natural laws of existence haven't changed from the time of the Buddha. People's understanding of his teachings have changed, but it's the same teaching. So depending on the level of depth of the artist and the architect who has designed the temple, you'll see some of the teachings embedded into the artwork and architecture of the actual temple. So I'm going to share that with you in today's class and help you guys understand these symbols so that when you encounter them in your journeys with the teachings of the Buddha, then you'll understand what it is that you're looking at and have a deeper appreciation for these symbols. And also they will help you to arise the understanding that you're looking to acquire through understanding the actual Buddhist teachings. By each time viewing these and recalling the teachings of the Buddha, it helps to further soak the teachings into the mind so that then you're able to more readily practice the teachings on a day-to-day -day basis. So this first symbol that I would like to share with you, and by the way, if you're listening to this on the podcast, which is just audio, then I would encourage you to get a copy of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, because all the images are in that book, or you can switch over to YouTube or Facebook to be able to actually see the images. This first image in the middle, in the other two as well, are representing the path to enlightenment and the one in the middle is the most common and this is the one that you'll see most frequently i will explain this one to you and then help you understand the others as well because by understanding the main one in the middle you'll understand the others this particular symbol is meant to depict essentially our multiple lives over multiple existences and our journey to enlightenment if you look at the middle of that little curly cue that's going around in a circle that's like the start of somebody's birth when they first start getting born in the cycle of rebirth and they're born over and over and over and over and over again so this first image in the center it's depicting the beginning of your original existences and then we've had these countless existences all the way up until now and that point in the middle of the curly cue is depicting that very first existence. And then we are essentially reborn countless times over and over and over again in this wheel or in this cycle. And you can see there the line's very thick, it's very broad, it's quite dark. This is what we experience as we're being born in these countless existences. But then eventually we get to the point where we start to get onto the path to enlightenment and we start this journey going in an upward direction and you see the line kind of narrows because we're kind of narrowing in on the teachings of the buddha that lead to enlightenment this is the natural laws of existence that he explained and as we're learning those teachings and we're stepping forward you see that there's growth and we're moving towards this higher consciousness as the line's moving up higher and higher but then there's these backward steps where it kind of circles around and then comes back. But then there's forward progress again. And then there's this kind of backward steps. And then there's this 
forward progress again and there's these backward steps but all the time we're narrowing in closer and closer and closer to the point where the mind ultimately gets to enlightenment and the line goes up straight it gets very very narrow and then it basically stops that's the end of the cycle of rebirth because you've narrowed in on the teachings and training the mind really deeply and you're moving to this higher consciousness higher and higher and higher as the line moves up to the top. This symbol is often referred to in English as the na and a, and there's other ways to refer to it as well. You'll typically see this symbol in artwork and on statues. They'll sometimes place this at the third eye on a statue of the Buddha or in the artwork because the middle of the forehead is the third eye or the inward looking eye. And with this symbol there, it's kind of an indication that, okay, this individual has attained enlightenment. You'll sometimes see this on like a bag or uh, you might see it like the ordained practitioners hold this fan in front of them when they're chanting. And it's just kind of like a way to kind of shelter their eyes and they kind of uh, are chanting and they might have this symbol on there. So you'll see this symbol in different places around Buddhist culture, around artwork, temples, on different things that you might see. And it's a symbol of enlightenment in your journey to enlightenment over countless lives. I've even seen some people that decide to get a tattoo of this at some place on their body. And then because of impermanence, you'll see artists that will kind of take this same image and then come up with their own depiction of it. And that's what the other two are on the sides. I just downloaded these off the internet because I wasn't interested in just showing one symbol because as you start looking around, you're gonna see other symbols as well. The one in the middle is the most common and that's the one you'll see most frequently, but the ones on the sides, you'll see these as well. And they're representing the same thing. They're just doing it in a different way because artists tend to enjoy to make things in their own way and kind of bring their own creativity to it. So you might see other variations of this as well, but the one in the middle is the most common. So what I'd like to do at the end of each one of these that I explained to you is just open up the questions and see what questions you guys might have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, and our moderator Miranda will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Um, yes, sir. On Zoom, Iona has a question. She asks, was the symbol of Na suggested somehow by Master Buddha or was it created by his students? I'm not 100% sure whether the Buddha created this himself, whether his students created it and he was like, oh, that's perfect. That represents exactly what's happening on the path to enlightenment. Not exactly sure, but it's been with us for a really long period of time. You can go back to artwork from a really long time ago and you'll see that this will be there. And one of the things that I would like to just draw out is, and I'm not sure how clearly I talked about this initially, is this forward steps on the path to enlightenment. And then there's this kind of backwards aspect of it, right? Because oftentimes what we think is that we should learn something and then snap our fingers and immediately be able to implement this and everything's perfect. But what this image is depicting is that that's not how the path to enlightenment is and that's not how it works. That's what you're going to observe in your 
practice as you learn these teachings you'll be making these steps forward and then you'll feel like ah i took a couple of steps back and then you'll make a few more steps forward and you take a couple of steps back but there's always this forward progression and you're narrowing in closer and closer on the path but i'm sorry ayana i don't know whether this was from gautama buddha or from one of his students um yes sir i see slav has his hand raised let's go to him first question uh, sorry, I have a question, but I see some people do tattoo of the symbols and uh, in Thailand too. And uh, my question is, if people does do uh, tattoo, it's probably a form of attachment. You're asking, is it a form of attachment to have these symbols or draw them, or what are you uh, thinking? Yes, I ask him if it's form of attachment if you put, uh, do tattoo of the symbols. I see. So when you come up with any particular situation where we might say, is a tattoo an attachment or is it not an attachment? It's not the object itself or it's not the act of getting a tattoo that is the actual attachment. Instead, it's all about how the mind relates to this thing. Because what a craving desire attachment is, is it's a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of our affection. So if we are getting a tattoo and we just want to have this tattoo so badly, it's like, oh my goodness, I just got to have this tattoo. I want it so badly. This is the mind craving, desiring, uh, attached to it and longing for it. And there's this pleasant feelings if you get it but if you show up to the tattoo shop and your tattoo artist isn't there and you get frustrated or angry then there's an attachment there so it's not the act of getting the tattoo itself that makes it an attachment it's more how the mind relates to it so somebody could choose to get a tattoo and decide that that's what they would like to do is they would like to have some art on their body and they're choosing to get a tattoo and they're just like all right well you know when i get around to it i'd like to get this tattoo and then when they show up, say they go to the tattoo shop and the artist isn't there, it's like, oh, okay, well, he's not here or she's not here. Let me come back another time and I'll get that artwork done. But there's no discontentedness whatsoever. So in that situation and really all situations, there isn't something you can say like, okay, this is an attachment or it's not, except for something like drugs or alcohol or something like this, because this is indeed an attachment chasing after pleasant feelings because there's nothing wholesome that can come about from that. One thing that is going on with some people who choose to get a tattoo is personal existence view. If you view this body as who you are as a person and you think that this body is you and you're getting this artwork on the body to decorate the body, there could be personal existence view in the mind. And this is something to be aware of for anybody who's either gotten tattoos or considering getting tattoos is look inward to see if that personal existence view is there because not only can there be attachment to getting the tattoo potentially but there can be this attachment to the physical body thinking that this is who you are and that's the real motivation behind the tattoo but for each individual person slav it's different based on what's going on in the mind and this is where the real practice comes in in ensuring that you understand what an attachment is so then you can do the investigative work within your own mind to figure out whether getting this tattoo is an attachment or is it not uh, yes thank you sir is it wise to do something like getting a tattoo of these symbols 
is this seen as or considered to be disrespectful by Buddhist culture, by Buddhist leaders? It really depends. You know, different people are going to look at it in different ways. You know, if somebody is interested in doing it and that's their personal choice, then they should decide to go ahead and do that regardless of what other people's opinions are because somebody might say it's the most respectful thing you could ever do another person might say oh it's the most disrespectful thing you could ever do because everyone's going to have different opinions what i have seen here in thailand is that getting tattoos of the buddha a representation of his likeness people tend to look at that in a negative way particularly if it's a tattoo below the waist of the buddha so if someone puts it on their leg or on their foot or something like that because the Thais view the lower part of the body as being kind of dirty because you know at one time we didn't wear shoes and we walked around and here in Thailand there's still people that don't wear shoes walk around and your feet get really dirty and then before people come into the house they will typically wash their feet really well but then when you're sitting amongst people you don't point your feet towards people you keep your feet kind of tucked in and you don't point your feet towards images of the buddha and stuff like this so i've seen some people that actually get a tattoo of the buddha on their foot and for people who think this way of the foot being the lowest part of the body they would see that as being disrespectful but everybody has to learn on their own and has to understand these things and we shouldn't necessarily conform to what other people are saying is they feel is disrespectful but for me i wouldn't get a tattoo of the buddha on the body i don't have any tattoos but i wouldn't get a tattoo of his likeness on the body but for people getting a tattoo of this for example it could be a reminder for them, right? Like say they get a tattoo on their forearm and then throughout the day, they're constantly seeing this image and it can be a reminder for them to practice right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and all the other teachings. It could be something that really motivates them, encourages them in their practice. So this is why I think we shouldn't say whether it's wholesome or unwholesome or wise or unwise or necessarily conform to what other people say is respectful or disrespectful every person needs to look internally at their own practice and decide you know what's the real purpose of me getting this tattoo for example is it because i'm trying to project a certain image in the world and i feel more emboldened by having this tattoo and i'm trying to project this self-image, well, that would be personal existence view, probably not wise. But if this person has done that investigation and that inner work and they're getting this tattoo perhaps for that motivation and encouragement on a consistent ongoing basis, then that can be helpful for them to have that tattoo as a reminder. Uh, And my wife has a tattoo like that on her forearm. It says Buddha Vajana, which means the words of the Buddha. And I asked her one time, you know, why did you get that? And she said, oh, because every time I look down at it, it reminds me to ensure that I'm practicing the teachings. So I think it's better to think of these that way is that it's each individual person's choice and they have to decide for themselves what makes sense and what's best in their life. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Uh, It appears there are no other questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's look at the next image, which is the Dhamma wheel. It's called the Dhamma wheel. The Dhamma are the teachings of the Buddha. This wheel is representing a couple of things. 
The wheel itself is representing the cycle of rebirth. So that circle is representing the cycle of rebirth and this constant rounds of rebirth. And then the individual spokes, there's eight spokes there. And each one of those spokes is correlating to the Eightfold Path. The one in the middle at the 12 o'clock position, this is right view. And then as you go around, it's right view, right intention, right speech at the three o'clock position, right action, right livelihood at the six o'clock position, right effort, right mindfulness at the nine o'clock position, and then right concentration is the last one there. And this is to remind students of the Eightfold Path and the cycle of rebirth because it's the Eightfold Path which is going to provide you the guidance to get to enlightenment. And by getting to enlightenment, you end the cycle of rebirth. You're no longer reborn once the mind gets to enlightenment. So this is a reminder for you of the Eightfold Path and the teachings on the Eightfold Path. The Dhamma Wheel itself is something that a Buddha, when they awaken from enlightenment, will turn. This is a kind of figurative thing that where the scalp of a Buddha comes over the top of the crown of the head, and then there's a back part, of course, to the skull, there's a flat spot on the top of a Buddha's head that they will reach up after they attain enlightenment, and they will kind of figuratively turn this Dhamma wheel in a counterclockwise direction. And what this is, is this is a kind of sign of civilization stepping forward. This is humanity being able to make a big step forward because when a Buddha arises in the world, they've done so based on their own independent journey to enlightenment without the help of any teachers. And that means that that individual has deep, deep, deep wisdom about the path to enlightenment. Their teachings are going to be very clear, very concise, very precise, and their teachings are going to be very penetrating, being able to guide countless people to enlightenment during their life. So having an individual as a Buddha that has arisen in the world is a big step forward for all of humanity because now the teachings can come into the world very vibrantly and they can really shine in the world for countless people to be able to learn and practice. So when a Buddha awakens from enlightenment, they know that they're a Buddha, they know that they've awakened, they know that they've gradually moved their mind to the enlightened mental state. There'll be a period of time that that individual will reach up and then make this turn with their hand. And this is signifying from that point forward, humanity has taken a big step forward. So you will typically see this Dhamma wheel in a lot of different places, but one of the places that you will see it is behind the head of a Buddha. Here where I'm standing, you see some statues behind me and they've placed this Dhamma wheel behind the head of the Buddha. And that's because the Dhamma wheel is at the head of a Buddha and they're the ones who will turn it as they awaken from enlightenment. The one that's on the right side of your screen, this is just one that I downloaded from the internet. The one on the left, this is a, a marker that when you're building a temple complex, the temple itself is going to be on a certain plot of land. And on this plot of land, there's typically going to be multiple buildings. And the main building is called a sala. It's the main building where the main events kind of happen for that temple. And they will mark out the land around that 
before they actually start constructing it. They have eight directions of the compass, and then there's these balls that they will drop. They will dig these holes and they will drop these balls to kind of mark out the land with eight around the edges. And then there'll be one right in the middle of the temple, which is the ninth ball. And they'll drop all of these balls in a big event with various people coming to support the temple. And now this land is kind of designated for this sala or this main building this main pavilion to be constructed in that location and then where those markers are they will put these markers around the outside of the building there'll be eight of them one in each direction of the compass and then in the middle they won't have a marker because it'll be right in the middle of the floor where the big building is constructed and each one of these markers at each individual temple is different they're not all the same, but this particular temple had a marker that was of the Dhamma wheel. I've seen some that are just balls. I've seen some that are like lotus flowers. There's different ones at each temple. They're not all exactly the same. But you'll see this Dhamma wheel show up in multiple places throughout a temple complex or in artwork or different things because it's reminding you of the cycle of rebirth and it's reminding you that the escape from that is the Eightfold Path, those eight spokes. And then it recalls for you, helping you to kind of recount and reinvigorate the mind of the Eightfold Path and what those individual steps are and how to practice each individual step. What questions do you guys have on this one? Yes, sir. Uh, is this also, is the Dhamma wheel spoken of when we're reading of wheel turning monarchs? Yes. So in the discourses of the Buddha, he talks about a wheel turning monarch. And of course, as I mentioned, a Buddha is the one who's turning the Dhamma wheel and, and civilization is stepping forward. But what a wheel turning monarch is, is during the lifetime of the Buddha, you know, everything was being ruled over by kings and uh, royal families. Nowadays, we have elected leaders in most places. And a leader who is choosing to learn and practice the teachings on their own for their own practice, and then they guide that population of people through that wisdom of the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha calls this person a wheel-turning monarch, meaning they're helping to put in motion the Dhamma wheel and helping to bring the teachings into the world. Because if you have a political leader, for example, who's into all kinds of darkness and corruption and all kinds of problems, all kinds of aggressiveness. This is going to be very unfortunate for that population of people because that leader is making all kinds of decisions for their country that is affecting the individual people living in that country. And those people in the country are going to be affected by that darkness and that harshness. But if you have a leader in a country who is choosing to understand the Buddhist teachings, which is helping to understand the natural law of gamma and this cause and effect and things that create wholesome results in the world, this particular leader making decisions through the natural law of gamma, which the Buddhist teachings are explaining, that person's going to bring a lot of prosperity and growth to that community and to that population of people. So it would be very helpful for a population of people to have a leader who is being elected who understands the teachings of the Buddha and understands the natural law of gamma because as they make decisions, they're going to ensure that they're not causing harm so that harm isn't coming to them. I've seen this in action here in Thailand through the royalty, the royal family as they're 
learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha and how they make decisions, even as well as politicians here. There was a time about 12 years ago, I wasn't living in Thailand yet, but I was visiting here. And I remember that there was a news flash that the prime minister at the time was letting the Thai people know that Cambodia had flew an airplane over Thailand and dropped a bomb. It was like an unprovoked attack. They just dropped a bomb somewhere and I don't think they hurt anybody or I don't think anybody was killed. I can't remember that part. But the prime minister came on the TV and just alerting the Thai people of what happened and what occurred and informed them that they don't understand why Cambodia did this and that they're going to give Cambodia a couple of weeks to kind of calm down and just kind of reflect on what they did. And then after a two-week period that the Thai people were going to send a delegation to Cambodia and talk with the Cambodian officials to understand why is it that they chose to drop this bomb. And this was such a great way to diffuse the situation because in some countries, if this would have happened, that other country would have just immediately reacted and started bombing the other country and then there's a big war but because the politicians here in thailand were interested in diffusing the situation and understanding it they very respectfully gave the cambodian government time to think about what had transpired and that there would be no more bombs and then they sent a delegation into cambodia to ask questions about why did this occur and why is it that you felt like you needed to do this and then from that point forward there wasn't any more problems but i thought that that is a great example of someone who can be a wheel turning monarch rather than reacting with harshness and aggressiveness and bitterness to a situation like this these individuals who were leading the government at the time found a way to be able to diffuse the situation and ensure that that situation doesn't continue, which ultimately created more protection. Because if the Thai government would have you know, got its air force and its military to start attacking Cambodia, that would have created a more difficult, more challenging situation, would have elevated the problem and escalated it to a full-out war. Where in this situation, okay, the bomb was dropped. There was nothing that they could do about it. Let's just go in, you know, and spend some time to understand them. And prior to that, give them some time to calm down from whatever was transpiring. And I just thought that this was so excellent of a way to lead a country. And I don't know that the country that I came from would handle that situation in the same way. So this is what a wheel-turning monarch can do, is somebody who understands the teachings of the Buddha can make decisions this way that is very helpful for the population. Because if that politician would have immediately reacted and bombed Cambodia back, the Thai people would have been in the middle of a full-out war, and there would have been all kinds of bombs and all kinds of bullets and rockets and everything coming into Thailand, which would have made the problem a lot worse. So this leader was able to protect the Thai people through very wise decisions based in the teachings of the Buddha. And this is what a wheel-turning monarch would do, having that understanding of the natural law of gamma, they would do things like this in order to ensure the protection of the people based on the decisions that they're making. Because a political leader who's a leader of a country can be making wise decisions, which produces wholesome results, or they could be making unwise decisions, which lead to unwholesome results for the entire population of people in that country. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time. All right, so let's go to the next one. 
which is a lotus flower. This lotus flower is used throughout Buddhist art and throughout Buddhist culture as a representation of enlightenment. And I'll talk about it in two different ways. Is one is a closed lotus flower and one an open lotus flower. A open lotus flower is a symbol of enlightenment in that somebody has attained enlightenment. So oftentimes when you see Buddhist statues, you'll see an open lotus flower on the bottom as the foundation and you'll see the statue being carved or cast on top of this open lotus flower. Or if you see a Buddhist artwork in the Buddha sitting somewhere in meditation, they will typically put a bloomed lotus flower underneath of him and then they will put him on top of that. And that's representation of an individual who's attained enlightenment. When you see a closed lotus flower, which you see in the first picture, this is to remind you of your potential to attain enlightenment because it hasn't bloomed yet, but there's the potential because not every lotus flower blooms, right? When it comes up, there's some lotus flowers that just stay completely closed. They don't actually open up, but once it's opened, it's bloomed. The person is considered to be enlightened. But when you see a closed lotus flower, this is reminding you of your potential to attain enlightenment. And the reason why a lotus flower is used is because of the symbolism of how a lotus flower grows and where it grows. If you ever observe lotus flowers in nature, they're typically in a large pond of water and then the water is very muddy and very murky. And this is because the mud on the bottom of the pond is very muddy and very murky. So the roots of the lotus flower will be buried deep down into the mud, grabbing onto the earth. And then as this lotus flower grows, there's this growth of this strong stalk that comes up through the murky water, elevating itself up over the murky water, and then eventually it blooms. And this is essentially what's happening in the unenlightened mind is that the roots down deep into the soil of the earth are representative of craving, desire, attachment, how the mind's holding on and grasping and just attached and craving and yearning, holding on to this earth. But then as you develop your practice, there's this stalk that kind of grows up through the murky water and this stalk becomes thicker and thicker as you build your practice more and more. And then you ascend through the murkiness of the world. The world has got all this murkiness, like a pond full of dirty water. There's killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying. There's substances that cause heedlessness. There's harsh and bitter speech. There's aggressiveness and hostility. There's all these difficulties and challenges in the world and all these things that an individual could potentially get into. That's like the murkiness of the world. But in order to get to enlightenment, you need to ascend through this murkiness and above it. And then eventually, if your stalk is strong enough, then it can bloom. So this is like the mind blooming into enlightenment because as the mind becomes enlightened, there's this radiance or this brightness that comes through in the mind where you're never in a bad mood, for example, when the mind is enlightened. The mind is never experiencing any anger or sadness or frustration or guilt or shame or fear or resentment or jealousy. 
But in order to do that, you need to rise above the murkiness of the world and bloom where the mind comes into its own and has this radiance and brightness. So whenever you see a closed lotus flower, this is reminding you that you have the potential to attain enlightenment. And when you see a bloomed lotus flower, that's reminding you of enlightenment itself, that the mind blooms as it gets closer and closer to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this particular image? It does not appear we have any questions at this time, sir. Okay. So now let's go to the next one, which is showing kind of a combination where you see different artwork when you go into temples, you might see these different combinations because artists have the free will to make whatever it is that they would like to make. And depending on what your understanding is of the teachings, depending on what your understanding is of this different imagery, you might come across images that I actually didn't teach you about and I didn't talk about, but you might be able to figure it out. This is one of the things that the Thai people do as part of kind of like their holiday or their vacation. You know, in some places we might visit an amusement park or we might do certain activities activities like that. But in Thailand, what they do is they have this complete network of this national treasure, this national resource throughout the country. There's over 30,000 temples here, a total of over 40,000, but there's over 30,000 that are active and they've got people living there and actively maintaining the temple. And this has actually been created by the Thai people over multiple generations of investing their time, effort, energy, and resources into developing this network of temples. And within these temples, there's about 300,000 ordained practitioners living amongst all these temples. So when Thai people travel and they take their family and travel and so forth, they will oftentimes go to a certain region of Thailand and they will make a point as part of their vacation to visit various temples because these are all open to the public and you can just go in and visit these temples and you can visit two, three, four of them or more in a particular day. And you can go in and out of these temples, you can look at the artwork, you can look at the architecture, you can talk to some of the ordained practitioners or teachers that are there. And then Thai people typically will make a donation while they're there to help that temple to continue its work and all that it's doing. This is how the Thai people have invested in this national resource or this national treasure. It's almost like a scavenger hunt where you go around the temple and you look at the different artwork, the different sculptures, the different statues, the different things that they've got there. And you start recalling the teachings and you start reflecting on what it is that's being depicted. And some of the things things you might see or the things that I'm going to talk about in this class, but others might be something like this where somebody's combining that first image that I mentioned, the Na, with a lotus flower, all representing enlightenment itself. So as you traverse the Buddhist world, you can go in and out of these temples and you can observe the different artwork and architecture that they have and start to try to decipher what is it that this artist from 500 years ago was trying to communicate or 700 years ago or a thousand years ago what were they trying to communicate in their artwork and with an understanding of the teachings and a bit of the symbolism you can oftentimes decode this and it's actually quite enjoyable and quite fun to be able to visit these temples and then as you visit them if you make a little donation this is really nice to help that temple to pay for electric or water or to maintain it the tiles or the cleanliness of the temple and this keeps 
the upkeep of the temple so that now you build this national resource where throughout the world there's all these different temples that are being built and maintained by the generosity of the people who choose to come into these temples and visit them and then be able to make a bit of an offering to help that temple. And it doesn't have to be an enormous offering, but just something to help them. This can be really nice to build this resource within your country. Do you guys have any questions on this particular image? Um, no, sir. There are no questions about this image. All right. So let's go to this next one, which is something that you'll see at a lot of different temples. And the story that I'm going to share with you related to this I'm pretty sure that this story is not an accurate story of something that actually happened during the lifetime of the Buddha. And I'll explain to you why as we get to the end. But I share this story with you nonetheless because it's representative of why we see what we see at temples. And it also represents some of the teachings of the Buddha. Oftentimes, stories that are handed down from one generation to the next, they're actually based in myth. They're actually not true. But some of the actual depiction of the story is actually helping you to understand the path to enlightenment. So that's why I share this story is because you're going to see this statue at the base of the stairs of a lot of temples. Oftentimes the way that temples are built, there's a certain staircase kind of walking up into the main building or the main sala of the temple. And you'll see these big snakes. They're called Nagas or serpent kings. And Thai, I think we call them Pinyana, I think is the name for them. And what this is, is this is depicting a story that is told about something that occurred during the lifetime of the Buddha, but I don't think this is accurate. But I'll share it with you anyway, because there's certain depictions in the story that will help you understand the path to enlightenment. It's said that during the lifetime of the Buddha, that there was a being that was in the animal realm that was this Naga or this serpent king that was very close to being reborn as a human being. So it was able to transform itself from looking like a snake or a naga into looking like a human being. Because this naga or this serpent king was really interested in studying the teachings of the Buddha, it would transform itself into looking like a monk. And it would go into the places where the Buddha was giving the discourses and the teachings. And it would sit there looking like a monk, learning, the teachings of the Buddha. And one of the things that was common during the lifetime of the Buddha is that as the Buddha was talking in these multi-hour discourses, people would fall asleep. Now, we might see that as rude if somebody fell asleep during a discourse of a teacher, but this was a very common occurrence during the lifetime of the Buddha because learning the teachings of the Buddha and doing the work to understand them it's actually quite extensive. It's, it's, you know, sometimes very hard work, especially if the mind is somewhat polluted or heavily polluted. It can be a lot of work to listen to the discourses and understand them and ask questions and be attentive during the class. So over these multiple hours, students would oftentimes fall asleep and the Buddha would just stop teaching, let everybody sleep. And then when everybody was done sleeping and they would start waking up, then he would start teaching again. Well, this Naga king or this serpent king, this Naga who went into these discourses of the Buddha, one time fell asleep. And as it fell asleep, it didn't have the same level of consciousness as when it was awake. So it transformed back to being a snake 
while it was sleeping. And then slowly but surely, the ordained practitioners were waking up and they observed that they were in the presence of this enormous snake. And they got very scared, very fearful because they're not enlightened. And if you're not enlightened, there's going to be this fear. So they went and got the Buddha, who's not going to be afraid because he's enlightened and he doesn't have any fears. And he comes over and he sees what's going on and the big commotion that's happening around the snake. And then he talks to this being and he says, you know, why have you come into my discourses? And he's like, oh, you know, I would like to learn your discourses so that I can get to enlightenment. And the Buddha is like, oh, um, you know, I'm so sorry that, you know, you're in the animal realm. You're not able to get to enlightenment. But it looks like you're very close to becoming human and your very next birth. It looks like you might become a human. So therefore, that could be an opportunity for you to learn the teachings and get to enlightenment. And that would be the ideal time for you to be able to do that. So the Buddha was essentially asking him to leave because of the monks were having this fear based on the snake being there and the buddha knew that the snake couldn't get to enlightenment anyway so the snake respecting the buddha agreed to what the buddha was saying but the snake says okay since you're not going to let me learn the discourses and i can't get to enlightenment during this life i'm going to go outside and i'm going to stand guard and anybody who has any ill intentions towards your teachings i'm going to protect the teachings so that anybody who enters is only entering with goodwill or an interest to see your teachings continue into the world. And this is why you will see these statues at the front of the temple, at the very base of the stairs before you walk up the stairs into the temple. And what this should remind you is be appreciative that you've gotten to this human state because as an animal and all the countless animal existences you've had before this, you weren't able to get to enlightenment, but now you're in the human realm. You're able to get to enlightenment. So you can appreciate that you're in the human realm. And as you walk into the temple, have goodwill and the intention to learn and have the intention to bring goodness into your life through learning and practicing the teachings rather than having ill will towards the teachings or trying to degrade them or dilute them. And then this can also remind you how enlightened beings don't have fear, that there is no fear in the mind of an enlightened being because the Buddha knew that he hasn't caused any harm to this snake and he's not going to cause harm to the snake. So there's no need to be afraid of it. So that's why the Buddha was able to very easily go over to the snake and just talk to it, right? That's the story. I don't think that this story is actually accurate or true because there's no beings today that exist that can be an animal and then transform themselves into looking like a human. At least I haven't observed that for myself. If there's any beings out there that can do that, I've never seen it. So I suspect this story is myth, right? It's kind of folklore. It's something that's been handed down from generation to generation. It's actually in the Pali Canon. If you read the Pali Canon, you'll see it in there, which makes people maybe think that this is an actual real story. So if you come across this statue at the base of the stairs, you'll understand why it's there and you'll understand how to use it as a reminder for you of Animals can't get to enlightenment. Be appreciative that you're in the human realm, that it's a reminder that enlightened beings don't have 
any fear, and it's a reminder for you to have goodwill and the intention to learn as you enter into the temple. Because some people don't fully understand what I just shared with you, and they think that this statue has a spirit, some places you go, you'll see little offerings around this statue. You'll see little bottles of water or little sticky rice or little donuts or little flavored sodas or something like this. This particular temple that I'm at here, this is up on a mountain. It's a very popular temple and all different types of people from all over the world go there. And you'll see people that'll bring little offerings and they'll kind of make an offering to the statue thinking that the spirit of this being is actually in the statue. But this isn't true. This isn't part of what the Buddha actually taught. It's just a representation of reminding you of this particular story from the Pali Canon. So let me see if you guys have any questions on this particular statue or this image. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Uh, it does not appear we have any questions about this image, sir. All right. So let's move on to the last one. This last one is about this leaf. And the shape of this leaf is oftentimes used in artwork in different places amongst Buddhist culture and different sites that you might visit. The tree that you're looking at in the middle, this is the tree that is attributed to the enlightenment of the Buddha. The Buddha didn't actually attain enlightenment at this tree. It's just the tree that is attributed to his enlightenment because he really attained enlightenment over multiple lifetimes. And in his last lifetime, it took him six years to get to enlightenment when he was really dedicated to the path. But before that, he would have been learning things that would have helped him on his journey to enlightenment in that life and in prior lives as well. But the Buddha was asked during his lifetime as he informed people that he was about to die because he knew three months before he was going to die, he knew that he was going to die and he informed people. And people asked him, you know, well, what should we do when people are coming to pay respect to you and coming to honor you? You know, what should we do once you die? And he said, oh, well, what you can do is you can visit these four sites. He said, the site of my birth, the site of where I attained enlightenment or attributed to attaining my enlightenment, the site of my very first teaching and the site of my death and where I die. These four sites can be visited in order to pay respect and homage if you would like. And these are actually four sites that we're going to visit in 2023. I'm taking a Buddhist pilgrimage tour and inviting students to come along if you guys would like to come. And you can visit these four sites and other sites as well. This particular site is in India, in Northeast India, where there's this tree that when the Buddha went out into the jungle, into the forest to attain enlightenment, he knew that he had attained enlightenment. But there was a lot of other people who were teaching during his lifetime that they were claiming that it was their teachings that would lead to enlightenment. But the Buddha knew that their teachings don't lead to enlightenment because he knew what enlightenment was. He had attained it and he saw what other people were teaching and he knew that that isn't what led to enlightenment because he actually studied with a couple of those teachers before he went out on his own and actually did his own work to get to enlightenment. And they were teaching him to hang himself upside down from trees, starving the, the physical body, piercing the body with metal implements and things like this. Essentially, the thought was that if you could cause physical pain to the body and you could transcend that in the mind, that you would get to enlightenment. But the Buddha figured out that this was not true. 
He understood that living in the palace and being indulgent in sensual pleasures didn't lead to enlightenment, but also having this life of asceticism where you're doing all these damaging things to the body, that's not going to lead to enlightenment either. So he discovered this middle way. But other people didn't understand this because he was the only one at his lifetime that understood it. So after he attained enlightenment over his entire six-year journey, he spent about seven weeks at this tree contemplating whether he should actually share his teachings with others or should he just go back to the palace and continue life as a member of the royal family. Well, we all know what his decision was, is he decided to share these teachings with the world, but it took him about seven weeks of contemplating of whether he should do that or not. And it was this tree that he was contemplating under over that seven week period. So the leaf of this tree is a symbol of enlightenment and a reminder of enlightenment. And depending on where you go in the Buddhist world, you will see this tree at different places in different temples and different sites. They will plant this particular tree. In English, we call it a Bodhi tree, but it has a Latin name as well. And it has other names in other parts of the world. And I put that into the book in chapter 23 that you can see what the Latin name and the other name of this tree is. Some people, having visited this tree, they can go there and you can get a little sapling of this tree and then you can plant it where it's like the child of this tree. And there's some temples that I've been to that the tree is now grown, but people know that that particular tree is a direct descendant of the actual tree that the Buddha was contemplating under for this seven week period. So you will see this shape of this leaf being used in different Buddhist art and in different temples as a way of reminding you of enlightenment because this tree is attributed to the enlightenment of the Buddha, but it wasn't just one location where he attained enlightenment. It's not like there's a switch that is flipped. It's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress that leads to enlightenment. And the Buddha talks about this in his teachings and if you ultimately get to enlightenment, you'll see that that's what you're doing as well, that there's this gradual cultivation of wisdom through learning. There's this gradual practice that is helping you to practice in a way that eliminates the pollution of mind. And then there's this progress that is also very gradual. And then eventually, when you observe that the mind doesn't experience any discontent feelings for like one to three years, then you'll know that, okay, the mind's enlightened. But you're not going to be able to say, you know, one minute ago, I wasn't enlightened. But now one minute later, I am enlightened. You're not going to be able to distinguish it to that level of detail. And neither could the Buddha. But they attribute this particular tree to his enlightenment because that's where he contemplated for seven weeks after his enlightenment. So this is the last one that I have to share with you guys. We can open up to any questions that you guys have about any of these images or anything that I've taught in the program or any questions that you have about the path to enlightenment. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Um, yes, sir. In Zoom, Iona had a question not related to images. She asks, is the state of the world an external representation of everyone's mind? Is the state of the world a representation of everyone's mind? Yes. Sir. In my opinion, the answer would be yes. 
that as human beings' mind have become more and more polluted, then that's why we see more and more harm in the world. Because everything that's happening in the world, this is based on human decisions, essentially. And if the mind is polluted with craving anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, then the decisions that individual human beings are making are going to be based in craving anger and ignorance. And the decisions that we make are going to then produce unwholesome results. When there's decisions that are made that are producing wholesome results, those are based in generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So everything that you see going on in the world, if it's unwholesome, it can be traced back to craving anger and ignorance. The more you understand craving anger and ignorance, you can see that every single issue, either on a local level or a global level or an individual level, is all being based in craving anger and ignorance if it's an unwholesome result. And any wholesome things that you see going on in the world are going to be based in generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So the nature and the condition of our world is a direct reflection of what's going on in the human mind. So when we look at the problems with climate change or when we look at problems with war or rape or murder or poverty or famine or these things, diseases and illnesses, all these things are happening based on human decisions. But then there are places in the world where wholesome things are happening, and that's based on human decisions also. And this is why whatever problems that are going on in the world right now, they can all be completely improved. And we can create a better world for ourselves through making better decisions. When we make better decisions, then we actually create a better environment for all of us to live in, not just a physical environment, but how we make decisions on an individual basis in our relationships, both personally and professionally. Yes, sir. Um, Tonka had asked, would it be wrong action if we don't answer to a text message saying happy Thanksgiving, sir? It's not a wrong action because there's no action and it wouldn't be wrong speech. You don't need to reply to anybody. It's, you're not required to do that. You can reply and maybe reply based on right speech, of course, but you're not required to. Somebody might actually get angry if you don't reply because if they're attached to you, right, if they're craving for you to reply to them, then when you don't do that, they might cause themselves anger and they might attribute that anger to you that you've caused that anger. But you know with wisdom that if you choose not to reply that you're not causing the anger. They're just causing it themselves. Sometimes it's best to reply and other times maybe it's better not to so that you help them to eliminate any kind of craving, desire, attachment to you. So you'll have to decide for yourself. This is where the practice comes in and you understanding all the different variables in your relationship you'll be able to decide whether it's wise for you to reply. And if you do reply, what should you reply? If you don't reply, you know, how should you respond in some situation if they get angry that you haven't replied? So this is where you need to practice. But you're not required to reply to somebody just because they've written you a message or something like that. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony asks on Zoom, is that are there any teachings on how many persons reached enlightenment when the teachings were first taught compared to these times, sir? Compared to what? These times oh. currently, sir. 
So we know during the lifetime of a Buddha, countless people are going to get to enlightenment. So there's no exact number because it's countless. There's actually a story in the Pali Canon or a depiction of an event that occurred during the lifetime of the Buddha where there was 1,250 enlightened beings that all converged on the location of where the Buddha was all at the same time without any pre-planning. So, of course, the Buddha moved around from place to place to place teaching. And enlightened beings oftentimes have insight into things that are going on in the world without other people knowing them, or they can also see the future, for example. So there was this one event that occurred where none of these enlightened beings talked with each other. None of them knew where the Buddha was, but they all converged on the same location in one particular time. This is one of the things that occurred during the lifetime of the Buddha. So that's one place where we see that there was a minimum of 1,250 enlightened beings. But during his lifetime, we know that there would have been countless people that got to enlightenment, unable to be counted. Now that compared to where we are today, I would say there probably isn't even 1,250 enlightened beings. There probably aren't even 250 enlightened beings. There may not even be 50 enlightened beings. I'm unsure because an enlightened being is not going to go around and advertise that they're enlightened because we would know that they're not enlightened. There's no list of enlightened beings because to determine who is enlightened and who isn't enlightened, it's somewhat subjective. And that subjectivity is based on the wisdom of the individual who's making the decision whether somebody is enlightened or isn't enlightened. A Buddha would be able to very easily tell whether somebody is enlightened or isn't enlightened. And another enlightened being would be able to tell as well because they know what they needed to do in order to get to enlightenment. So an enlightened being and a Buddha who is an enlightened being uh, would be able to observe somebody else and be able to know whether that person is enlightened or not. But the vast majority of the world wouldn't be able to decipher or determine whether somebody is enlightened or isn't enlightened. But today, there's very few enlightened beings comparative to what existed during the lifetime of the Buddha. But I suspect what we'll see is that number is just going to continue to increase even though there isn't an actual count anywhere. I would suggests that we'll see that the number of enlightened beings are just going to continue to grow from this point forward. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, Iola asks, teacher, can you please explain if a human helps an animal, does that build wholesome karma for the human? Yes. If a human being is doing any kind of practice of generosity, uh, loving kindness or wisdom, uh, anytime you're practicing compassion, which is concern for the misfortune of others, that loving kindness is genuine interest in seeing others be well, this active goodwill. And also generosity is the giving and sharing of time, effort, energy, and resources that are more than is strictly required. Anytime you're practicing any of these things and rising that up in the mind, whether it's towards a human or whether it's towards a animal, it's still your practice and it's still going to help you to cultivate the mind and allow the generosity and the loving kindness and the compassion to permeate in the mind. So it's going to help you whether it's an animal or it's a human. Yes, sir. Another part to your question. Also, does it potentially give the animal a new experience of how kindness is beneficial? 
animals can learn a bit. They have more challenges, of course, because they don't have the comprehension of language that a human has, but they are able to learn. That's why we see that animals can be domesticated. So as we nurture animals and we care for them and we show them love and kindness and compassion, they can adopt some of these things, but they're always going to be animals, right? Uh, even no matter how loving or kind a dog is, no matter how domesticated it is, it can still lash out and bite, right? It can still fight very easily because it's got that ill will is still embedded in its mind. It's still possible for these things to occur because it's an animal. It's not able to fully eliminate things like central desire or ill will or these other things that are part of the 10 fetters. So it can learn some and it will help it to improve its rebirth in a future rebirth, but it's not going to learn it to the level of being able to get to enlightenment. There's a recent story that I saw in the Thai news here that there was this rat that was trained in Cambodia to go around and sniff out landmines because during the war, there was lots of landmines that were put in place in Cambodia and there's children and adults who are getting injured and killed from these landmines that were planted like many, many decades ago. So they're trying to eradicate the landmines from Cambodia so that it'll be safe for children and adults to walk around the countryside and so forth. And they trained this rat to be able to go out and sniff out the land and find landmines. And apparently during its lifetime, which I imagine a rat's lifetime isn't very long, it found over a hundred landmines during its life and they were able to dig them up safely and dispose of them, which helped to ensure that people and other beings weren't getting injured by these landmines. So it was people who trained this rat to do it, but the rat chose to do this, right? The rat had to learn how to do this. And then when they put the rat out on the land, it chose to go out and sniff and identify these landmines. This particular rat would have developed a lot of wholesome gamma that potentially in its next life, it was probably reborn into the human realm. So this is an example of how humans can help animals and animals are helping humans too. And then this is actually leading to more wisdom of that rat. And then when that rat was reborn into say a human life, it would have already cultivated a certain amount of generosity, loving kindness and compassion and wisdom in its existence as a rat so that by the time it became human, it would have some of that on board in that human existence. And this is how people and beings can evolve over countless lifetimes and ultimately get to the point where they've cultivated enough wisdom to get to enlightenment and escape the whole cycle of rebirth. Okay, that does go to towards the last part of her question. She asked, science is showing us how some animals help each other, but how does this translate in the animal realm and comma rebirth? Yeah, exactly. So as animals learn, that wisdom that they gain is going to help them in future lives too. Just like a human being who learns the path to enlightenment but doesn't get to enlightenment, they will be able to retain that wisdom that they learned in the human life. And then when they get into their next life, if that's human, they will have those residual memories. And the same thing in our animal existences, if we've cultivated any kind of wisdom, that wisdom can move forward into our future births. And this is helpful 
for animals. And this is one of the reasons why we see this explosion of the human population. I think Tonka was asking about this kind of question in the Facebook group this week. And this is a direct relationship to what has transpired with animals over the recent centuries that as animals have become more and more domesticated and they've learned more and more wisdom, it's propelled them more and more into the human world. And we've seen this shrinking down of the animal realm and we've seen this expansion of the human realm. And this is a direct relation to the domestication of animals and the evolving of wisdom. As animals are dying, they're becoming humans more and more easily. And this is why we're seeing this expansion of the human realm that now I think we're up to 7.5 billion people in the human realm. And that's predicted to only continue to increase. And from what I saw from scientists is 99% of the animals that once existed on the earth are now extinct. So all the animals, and there's billions of animals, probably trillions of animals, that's only representative of 1% of the animals that once existed in the world. So this animal realm has been constantly shrinking and the human realm has been constantly growing, which is exactly what we would think that we would see based on what we understand from the teachings of the Buddha about the cycle of rebirth. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. I see Slop has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question, sir. Teacher Dave, I have a question. Very often I'm wondering why people who are close to you, it's most irritate you. Sure. So if you understand the Four Noble Truths, that the mind is actually causing itself to be irritated. It's craving, desire, attachment that the mind is causing that annoyance and that irritation and that frustration itself. And the reason why people who are close to you that that arises most easily is because you're most attached to them. Where if you see somebody on the street that you don't know and they walk by and they say something disrespectful, you might just blow it off and just keep on walking, no big deal, because you're not attached to that person. You don't have a craving for that person to respect you. But if it was your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your child who disrespected you, you would perhaps get very angry and very frustrated because you have a craving, you have a desire, you have this attachment to this individual. So the people who are closest to you, that's where your attachments are the strongest. And that's why your mind is more easily able to become irritated or frustrated or annoyed when you're involved in contact with those individuals. But you can get to a point where you eliminate your craving, desire, attachment, maintain the relationship, but you can eliminate the mind's mental attachment so that now if things occur that you disagree with in the relationships that you're in, your mind won't be shaken up by it. And that's where you get to real liberation. If you think about the path to enlightenment like an onion, the outer layers of the onion peel off really easy. But as you get deeper and deeper into the core of the onion, it's a lot harder to peel it back because the core of the onion is more tight where the outer layers are more loose. So when you are starting on this path to enlightenment, the outer layers of things, you know, it's really easy to let those things go. But as you get deeper and deeper into the core, like your 
close relationships, those tend to be some of the hardest attachments for people to let go of. But with continued practice and development on the path, you can eliminate those attachments while still maintaining the relationships. And this is where you learn about true love, how to love without attachment. Because when you can learn how to love without attachment, then you can love everybody and you don't have any expectations of them. But as long as you have wants or expectations or cravings or desires for other beings to function in a certain way, when they're not doing what you want them to do, your mind's going to be irritated or annoyed or frustrated rather than just realize they are their own being and they need to make their own decisions. Thank you very much, Dave. You're very welcome, sir. I see Tony also has his hand up. Let's go to him for his question, please. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm just wondering what your what your teachings or thoughts are on shrines uh, to, to, to uh, or or altar altar shrine. I don't know what the proper terminology is as in, in Buddhism, but uh, as far as having a shrine set up with uh, incense and and the different uh, the different symbols and that type of thing, sir. Sure. So there's no harm in setting this kind of thing up. And some people like to set this up in their home and have kind of a designated meditation place. At the temple where I teach, the large classroom, I set one up on one end of the classroom. And it can be a way to honor and respect Gautama Buddha. It can be a way to remind you of the teachings. The challenge becomes is sometimes people think that the spirit of the Buddha is there and they'll start giving offerings of water or food to the Buddha. This is where the mind becomes deluded and thinking that this is actually proper practice. The Buddha actually talks about eliminating rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So the altar itself or any kind of shrine that somebody creates, that by itself is not going to lead to enlightenment, and it's not a requirement of enlightenment. One of the discourses of the Buddha, he talked about people creating shrines during his lifetime. And he says, you know, you can run to these shrines, but these shrines aren't going to protect you. It's essentially your own decisions, your wisdom and making wise decisions that's going to protect you in your life. That if we make unwise decisions, we're going to experience unwholesome results. Whereas if we make wise decisions through wisdom, then we're going to experience wholesome results. So these altars or shrines, they can be created as a way to maybe remind you to practice the teachings, but it's not required. And that by itself isn't going to produce enlightenment or get you to enlightenment. It's your work to learn, reflect, and practice that's going to get you to enlightenment. Thank you, sir. I was wondering the shape of that leaf from the Bodhi tree where it's wide at the bottom and then tapers and goes into that thin point. Could that be where the symbol for enlightenment really kind of first came from? Just the basic shape like that, sir? Potentially. You can see that top part of the leaf looks very similar to the image representing enlightenment, but I'm not really sure the, the you know when these things came about other than what I've shared with you already. I don't really have any other information on any of those symbols other than what I wrote in the book and what I share in the class. I'm not holding anything back. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you, sir. Yep, you're welcome. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. 
All right. Well, thank you all for joining the class. As you see, this is a very light topic, a very fun topic right here at the end of the program and at the end of the book. It can be really enjoyable to know this symbolism and be able to decipher it. As I mentioned, when you go into various temple environments and see various artwork, and you might learn of others that are out there as well. So feel free to investigate that if you like. Next week in our group learning program on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 24. This chapter is titled Misunderstandings of Gautama Buddhist Teachings. Because now that you've learned in this program for six and a half months and I've shared the various teachings with you, now it's important for me to share with you the misunderstandings because you've learned things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the natural law of gamma, the three poisons, what is merit, extensive meditation training, and all other different types of topics in this program. And one of the things that you learned way back in chapter three, and you've heard me talk about it at different times, is that the Buddha taught to not do rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, because these things don't lead to enlightenment. Whether you choose to do them or not is up to you, but understanding that they don't lead to enlightenment is very helpful. And there's things like this that are being misunderstood in the world. So if you've learned these teachings with me and in this book, and then you choose to visit a temple, one of the first things you might see is rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And you might be like, hold on a second. You know, David taught me that this doesn't lead to enlightenment, but here I am at a real Buddhist temple with real ordained practitioners, and they're doing things like rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. Why is this? So I'm going to help you understand the various things that you're going to see at most temples and help you understand how these things aren't the teachings of the Buddha, using the words of the Buddha, so that I'll go through these various misunderstandings and things like the monks will take things and they'll sprinkle water on people. They have these little urns where they pour water out. They tie things around your wrist. They do all these different things. And you might be curious, why are they doing those things? What are they thinking? How does it connect to the Buddhist teachings? And I'm going to explain those things to you next week in terms of misunderstandings of the Buddhist teachings. And we're also going to be talking about things like reincarnation versus rebirth. We're going to be talking about many different topics, even using the word Lord Buddha and things like this. I'm going to dive into ultimately a bunch of different topics that are very commonly misunderstood. And as you interact with people in the Buddhist world at temples or even when you read books by well-respected authors, you're going to see some things that aren't actually the Buddhist teachings. And I'll help you understand why that's occurred and help you to navigate so that you understand what is the true path to enlightenment. Because the more that you see the true path, the more likely you're able to walk towards that. Whereas if it gets kind of muddy and murky and you're not quite sure what the path to enlightenment is, it gets really diluted and it's hard for you to be able to see that clear path and make your progress to actual enlightenment. So that's what we're going to be doing next Sunday. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So you're welcome to come together as a group to encourage, support, and motivate each other in your meditation practice. And as I've been mentioning, two months of November and December, I'm going to be sharing eight unique classes that I haven't taught before. I haven't written about them. They're just completely 
topics that are going to help you to build harmony in your relationships. These are eight classes that I taught as part of the retreat in the USA this past summer, and I haven't taught them anywhere else other than that retreat. So I'd like to share them in this online format so that you guys can learn them all throughout the world, but also we can have some really good recordings for the future for other people to learn them as well. So there's eight individual classes that I'm calling the retreat series, Harmony and Relationships. This is gonna be the four Sundays in November and December, I'll be sharing these with you. So if you're coming each Sunday like you normally do, or you're listening to the replay from our Sunday class, you'll be able to learn that content from those eight unique classes that I haven't taught yet. So I'll perhaps see you in a future class. If you need any help whatsoever, feel free to reach out for support. I'll see you in the future. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.